You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone. And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 78. This week, I would like to thank Jacob, Neil, and James for choosing to support this podcast. You can support the show as well over on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar. It has been a few weeks since the last episode was released, and during that time I wandered around Europe dodging floods, union strikes, and very drunk Belgians. I also had the privilege of visiting Ypres and the surrounding countryside. Truly a humbling experience after reading so much about the great struggles for that piece of Belgium during the war. Over the coming weeks, I will be writing up a bunch of information about my trip, lots of pictures and history mixed in, with some advice as well if you're looking to travel. So head on over to the podcast's Facebook or Twitter pages if you want to see some pictures of some World War I monuments scattered around Paris, or why the National Portrait Gallery in London is a great place to stop off for some World War I portraits, or why out of the three military museums I visited, the one in Brussels was the best. Oh, and lots of beer pictures. Belgian beer is best beer. I should probably get started with the show here, though, so off we go. Last episode, we discussed how the two opposing fleets got to the Battle of Jutland. Then we covered what happened when the battlecruiser forces under Beatty and Hipper met. This week, we pick up at that point, with the battlecruisers of the two admirals fully engaged with each other. There was, however, another group about to enter the battle, and that was the 5th Battle Squadron, and its four Queen Elizabeth-class super dreadnoughts, under the command of Vice Admiral Evan Thomas. They would soon enter the fight and swing the balance of power very far into the favor of the British. At least, until a little group of ships, called the German High Seas Fleet, under the command of Admiral Scheer, arrived from the south. We will close out this show by looking at what Jellicoe has been doing while all this fighting has been happening to his south. He really doesn't know what he's running into, but he'll find out very soon. At the very end of last episode, Beatty had turned away from Hipper. After having one of his ships blow up, he really just wanted to give himself some room. As the distance between the two groups of ships increased, the rate of fire decreased as ships began to move either out of range or out of vision of the other ships. While Beatty was not purposefully bringing the Germans into range of Evan Thomas, that was exactly what was happening. 
Just a bit after 4 p.m., Evan Thomas, after being separated from BD4 all the fighting up to this point, finally came within range of Hipper's ships and began to fire on the Vondertan at a range of 19,000 yards. His ships shot a few ranging rounds, and then, when all of his ships were within range, Evan Thomas turned to starboard so that he could bring all of his monster 15-inch guns to bear on the Germans. The first two ships, the Barnum and the Valiant, fired on the Moltke, while the Warspite and the Malaya fired on the Vondertan. The two German ships soon had shells falling all around them, and also onto them. The Moltke was hit in one of its 5.9-inch broadside turrets, putting it out of action. The Vondertan had the worst of it, though. One of the shells hit the Vondertan, and it actually penetrated under the water, and resulted in 600 tons of water being taken on board. At the front of his line, Hipper was just getting the news of the new British ships, and so he ordered his ships to increase speed to 23 knots, to keep the British ships at a distance for at least a little bit. This change in speed, coupled with Beatty turning back into Hipper, meant that the distance between the two lines of battlecruisers was decreasing rapidly. At one point, Beatty was steering 34 degrees into the Germans. Evan Thomas was also now within 14,000 yards of the German ships, well within proper firing range. The firing got so accurate and so heavy that the Moltke and the Vondertan were forced to start a slight zigzag pattern just to try and throw off the British gunners. However, there was only so much that they could do without losing too much straight line speed and letting the British get even closer. At the front of the line, as they closed, hits started registering again on both sides. The Lion hit the Lutzow, the Queen Mary hit the Sidelitz, the Vondertan landed a shot on the New Zealand, the Moltke on the Tiger. The New Zealand then hit the Vondertan again, putting its forward turret out of action. At roughly the same time, another shell hit the Vondertan's rear turret, rendering it also inoperable. The Vondertan was quickly running out of guns, but it had no choice but to stay in the line. Throughout all of this movement, two ships were focusing fire on the Queen Mary, the Duflinger and the Sidelitz, and at 4.24, tragedy struck. At that time, the Duflinger hit the Queen Mary near the Q turret, followed closely by more hits in pretty much the exact same spot. Suddenly, there was a giant explosion, followed by a massive spout of flame, and then another explosion, and then more flames, and then there was a final explosion, larger than the others, that rocked the entire ship which quickly rolled over to port and sank. The British had now lost two battlecruisers, with almost their entire crews. Beatty, sensing that things may be quickly turning against his ships, decided to switch things up. During all of the fighting, a small fleet of 12 British destroyers had been trying to stay in position to deliver or repel or torpedo attack on the enemy. Beatty now ordered these small ships in to deliver their deadly payloads. Hipper, seeing this happening, then sent his 15 destroyers on their own to do exactly the same thing. The British were able to avoid all the German torpedoes, but one of the British fish struck home. The sidelitz was hit by one of the 20 British torpedoes near the forward turret, creating a hole 40 feet long and 12 feet wide. The ship, even taking on tons and tons of water, was able to keep pace, and she kept her spot in line. At 4.43, after another critical development in the fighting, Beatty recalled the destroyers and headed north at max speed. The phase of Jutland known as the run to the south was over, and the British had lost badly. However, now it was time for the next phase of the battle to begin, because that critical development I mentioned was none other than the appearance of the German high seas fleet in all of its strength and glory. 
For the British, it was now time to turn and run. When the fighting had begun, Sheer and the High Seas Fleet were about 50 miles to the south of Hipper. An hour later, Hipper was able to see Sheer as Hipper sailed southeast while Sheer sailed north. This was at the end of a bit of complicated maneuvering from Sheer, as he tried to properly put his ships in the precisely correct position for an ambush. This involved him first heading north before contact was made, and then west when Hipper sighted Beatty, and then a race directly north again once Evan Thomas came into the battle and time became so critical. This was all done to try and place the British ships between the two sets of German ships. They were, however, unsuccessful because Scheer opted out of it when Evan Thomas entered the fray. For the British, it was very fortunate that they were able to learn of Scheer and his position before he got on top of them, and this was due to Captain Goodenough and his second light cruiser squadron. During the run to the south, the British light cruisers had been struggling to get and stay ahead of Beatty to try and execute on their scouting mission, which was so critical. At this critical point, they were well enough positioned, uh, at least good enough to save Beatty from disaster. At 4.43 p.m., the lookouts on good enough ship, the Southampton, saw to their southeast the high seas fleet coming out of the mist. Three minutes later, there was a contact report radioed to Beatty, containing all of the information that they had. Quote, Course of the enemy's battle fleet is north, single line ahead. Composition of van is Kaiser class. Destroyers on both wings and ahead. Enemy battle cruisers joining the battle fleet from the north. End quote. With this threat now on the field, Beatty did not immediately turn north. Instead, he decided to continue on his course to the south for just a few more minutes. This was not because Beatty harbored any thoughts about trying to take him on himself. He's not stupid. But instead, he just wanted to confirm the German ships himself. And at 4.45, this was done. As soon as it was apparent that the contact report was correct, Beatty gave the signal to his ships to alter course in succession 16 points to starboard, which is basically a 180 degree turn. I quote this order because the wording will end up being important. It was very specific and containing the phrase turn in succession. Not just turn, turn in succession. This meant that instead of just turning around, the line of British ships should all follow the ships in front of them to pass through the same point that the lion passed through when it turned. This was a perfectly fine, perfectly valid order. However, in this specific situation, it caused some problems, especially for the 5th Battle Squadron. First of all, by telling Evan Thomas how to turn, it reduced Evan Thomas's ability to alter the course of his ships in action, just took away some freedom. This was the least of his problems, though, because the order was also delivered to Evan Thomas far too late. Beatty had turned his battleships just in time to stay out of the range of the German dreadnoughts, but the signal was not properly relayed to Evan Thomas via signal light. Again, this is a whole other problem with him coordinating. This meant that Evan Thomas was not given the order until he passed Beatty, while Beatty was already on his way north. Then a further delay happened when the signal to turn was not taken down until six minutes after it was given to Evan Thomas. As I mentioned last episode, orders were not to be executed until they were hauled down, not when they were received. This brought Evan Thomas closer by the minute to the German guns. All of these problems combined to result in Evan Thomas turning north just 21,000 yards from the German fleet. By the time the turn was being executed, the British ships were already within range of the German guns. One officer aboard the 5th Squadron would describe it as a very hot corner, as the German shells fell hot and heavy around them. 
Luckily for Evan Thomas, all of his ships were able to make the turn without incident, and at 5.05 the turn was completed and the firing resumed from the 5th Battle Squadron. During this time, the Germans had been racing north at top speed to try and catch the British ships as soon as possible. There were even a few shots fired at the British battle cruisers as they made their turn at absolutely max range. By 5.08, at least five of the German dreadnoughts were all firing at just the last few ships of Evan Thomas' squadron. Evan Thomas was again somewhat lucky in that the Germans had sort of lost formation in the preceding 20 minutes. Scheer had ordered a slight turn after sighting the British ships just trying to get in position, but instead of all making the same turn at the same time and staying in formation, the German ships had started to drift apart in some pretty unfortunate ways, and some pretty hefty gaps had developed between ships. This meant that they were unable to engage the retreating Evan Thomas with the maximum number of guns. But Scheer couldn't really fix this because that means he had to slow down and he can't do that either. Even with these errors on the German side, the British were still heavily outgunned and they were on the run to the north, starting the next phase of the battle, creatively called the run to the north. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Robert Massey, in his excellent book, Castle of Steel, said of the run to the north that, quote, this hour... From a few minutes before five o'clock, when the Queen Elizabeth wheeled north, three miles in Beatty's wake, until just after six, when they joined the Grand Fleet battle line, was their time of glory. Quote. A turret officer on board the Malaya does a pretty good job of explaining why. Quote, when we turned, I saw our battle cruisers proceeding north at full speed, already seven or eight thousand yards ahead of us. I then realized that just the four of us of the 5th Battle Squadron would have to entertain the high seas fleet, four against perhaps 20, end quote. The 5th Battle Squadron was now, essentially, engaged with every German ship by themselves. Beatty had raced to the north and out of the battle, at which point he slowed down for half an hour and allowed his ships to do some much-needed repairs, including some very serious firefighting. The Lion, Tiger, and Princess Royal had all been hit about 15 times, with the New Zealand being the lucky one with barely a scratch. 
Back in the battle, the 5th Battle Squadron raced north at 25 knots, with the Barnum and Valiant assigned to continue firing on the German battlecruisers, while the Warspite and Malaya engaged the German dreadnoughts on their tail. While they were firing, they also, of course, were receiving fire. The Barnum was first to be hit, but the Malaya and the Warspite also received several hits during their journey north. While getting hit was never desired, none of the ships were disabled or slowed in any way, which was very important. If any of the Queen Elizabeths would have been hit in their engines or damaged enough to slow down, they would have had no chance of survival. Even if just a few knots had been taken off their top speed, they would have found themselves in the middle of the German high seas fleet in a matter of minutes. On the German side, after the British had turned to the north, Scheer had sent the signal to pursue the enemy to all the German ships. This was easier said than done for the German battlecruisers and their beat-up state. They still turned, but here is a rundown of the damage by this point in the fighting. The Vondertan, which could now not fire a single of her guns, but stayed in the line to attempt to draw fire, very valiant. The Lutzow had been hit several more times from the 5th Battle Squadron, which knocked out both the main and reserve wireless transmitters. With Hipper on board and no wireless, he now had difficulty not just communicating with his ships, but also with Sheer. The Seidlitz was by far the worst of all of the German ships, though. What was left of her guns had been knocked out by three hits from the Queen Elizabeths, and her list of port from the earlier torpedo hit was just getting worse. All of the ships stayed in the line, though, if only barely. It is somewhat amazing that all of these battlecruisers would make it through the battle, even with their current state and how much fighting there still was left. Sheer and Hipper did not care about the damage to the battlecruisers. What mattered was closing in on the 5th Battle Squadron and knocking one of them out. At this point in the fighting, both admirals believed that they were facing just two British squadrons that were now isolated and on the run. All it was left to do was to run them down. After half an hour of respite, Beatty signaled his ships to once again prepare for action and turned his ships back into the fray once again. Hipper saw him come out of the mist on his port bow, but he could not report to Shear because, again, the wireless thing. So what he had to do was he actually had to, by signal light, signal the next ship in the line who would then transmit the message to Shear. This method of playing a game of telephone slowed down communications greatly. In front of him, Hipper could see that Beatty was trying to get ahead of Hipper and cross his line. This forced Hipper to turn with Beatty to the east. This put the British in a much better position due to the sun and the wind, and as such, they closed to about 14,000 yards when they took advantage of this by quickly landing another hit on the Durflinger, which filled her torpedo room with water. At 5.45, a lookout on the Lion saw something, and quickly passed it along to the rest of the ship, with Beatty confirming it just a few minutes later. To the north, they had spotted Jellicoe. To keep the Germans from also spotting the Grand Fleet, Beatty turned in towards Hipper, forcing him to turn as well. This kept this secret from the Germans for another 10 minutes. But at 5.55, one of the German light cruisers, scouting to the north, signaled to Shear that they were in action with British dreadnoughts. This action was far to the east from where they knew that Evan Thomas was, and it could only mean one thing. At 5.59pm, the front ships of the high seas fleet broke through a line of heavy mist, and beyond, on the horizon, possible disaster. 24 British dreadnoughts and countless other ships were bearing down on them, now only 16,000 yards away. Now it was time for the Germans to run. 
So far, we've been keeping up with Beatty and Hipper, and then Sheer once he arrived at this on the scene. Now that Jellicoe has arrived, we should probably catch up with what he's been doing since the initial sighting of the ships by Beatty. Jellicoe was on board his flagship, the Iron Duke, when the shooting started at 3.48pm, at which point he was 52.5 miles-ish from the fighting. When the first sighting was made, his ships were spread out in lines of divisions, or lines of four ships each, which was the typical cruising behavior. By the time of the first shots, he ordered each line of ships to close to within 2,000 yards of each other. This meant that when the ships deployed into line, and each division got behind the other, they would be 500 yards apart. It's worth noting that Jellicoe was in the center of the British line, or of the British fleet, This meant that when they got into line of battle, he would be smack dab in the middle, instead of at the front, leading from the front. This would have ramifications later. The closer the ships were to each other, while in the line, the better, because it would let the British concentrate their vastly superior firepower more effectively on the German fleet. You just wanted more guns and less space, so you put your ships closer together. After Jellicoe sent a message to the Admiralty that fleet action is imminent at 4.51, he sort of falls off the action until he appears uh, to the north of Beatty. Part of the problem was that when Jellicoe reported his position to Beatty at 5.13, it was about 8 miles off, which meant that Beatty was not expecting Jellicoe to show up where he did. Jellicoe was sort of flying blind in the hours before the battle, though. He had many reports of action at various places, but due to some slight errors in ships reporting their own positions, the situation was very confused. Remember that they're trying to track on like paper charts, and it's super easy to get their positioning slightly confused, 8 miles this way, 10 miles that way, it really matters. Jellicoe needed the information, though. He needed as much information as he could possibly get about the German fleet. In theory, it was hoped that Beatty would be constantly feeding information to Jellicoe to help him make decisions. But as it was, Beatty had been sucked into his own battle, and was failing at this task, a very critical task. At 6.01, he radioed Beatty, asking where the enemy was, and this is when he really needed to know, because he had some very important questions that were weighing on his mind in the hour before 6pm and that was how he should deploy the fleet into battle order. There were a few different considerations and then two different decisions that he had to make. The first was when to deploy, pretty simple, right? Well, Jellicoe did not want to deploy too early, because this would slow his rate of advance and greatly hinder the fleet's mobility, its ability to sort of move side to side, as they were forced to follow the first ship in the line to stay organized. Jellicoe also did not want to deploy too late, or his ships would be a disorganized mass of confusion when the Germans appeared. Jellicoe also did not want to deploy the wrong direction. If he formed his line to the left, with each set of ships coming in behind the ships to their left, and instead he needed to turn right, there would be a lengthy delay while he tried to turn everything around. Without new information from Beatty, Jellicoe was forced to consider the information that he had and make a decision at 6.15. This would result in him being ready for the Germans, but also being pretty poorly placed. In fact, he was sailing away from the Germans while his ships got into order. Soon, however, they would be heading in the right direction, after a bit of course correcting, and they would finally find their prey, which we will discuss next week, as the two largest fleets in the world meet on a tiny area of the North Sea.